today's scripture is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming before, because I said, I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Here ends the reading of God's word. I would argue that trust between two people does not happen automatically. Just think about that. If, if you take two random strangers and you introduce them to one another and you say, guys, I need each of you to trust one another right now. What's gonna happen? Well, they can try their best, you know? Maybe they're doing one of those team building exercises where you have to like, fall backwards or something. They can try their best, but, but they're, they're simply not gonna trust one another the way a, a happily married husband and wife who've been together for 50 plus years are gonna trust one another. Why not? Because trust has to be gained, doesn't it? Someone has to do and say things that prove the trustworthiness of their character. 
So just to think about this, okay? Why, why do we choose to trust or not trust someone based on their actions? I mean, we do that. We, we kind of do it instinctively, but why do we do that? Well, it's because we know that, that what someone does or what someone says, especially over time, what does that do? It shows us who they really are on the inside, right? Whether their character is trustworthy. Luke six forty five. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So we get that on a human level. Here's the connection we need to make this morning. The same thing is true in our relationship with God. Exact same thing, okay? God has every right to require us to trust him simply on account of who he is. But he doesn't say to you or me, friend, just trust me. Take a leap of faith. Despite all you've seen and heard, you just got to believe in me. I know you don't have any good reasons, but just do it. He does not do that, friend. No. His works give us sturdy reasons to trust him. God speaks and God acts in a way that does what? That reveals, that discloses the trustworthiness of his character, of who he really is. But by the time you reach the middle of John 10, Jesus has done all kinds of works, deeds, before the eyes of men. So just to mention a few, he's turned water into wine. He's cleared out the temple. He's loved a despised woman. He's healed an official son who was about to die. He's made a man walk who'd been lame for 38 years. He's fed a multitude with five loaves and two fish. He walked on water in the middle of a storm. He gave sight to a man born blind. He taught crowds of people with grace and truth. And he confounded the Jewish authorities with biblical wisdom and penetrating insight just to mention a few. And in response to that, some people trusted Jesus. But a lot of people rejected him. Of John 10, 20 through 21, the the last two verses we finished last Sunday capture the general attitude here. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? See how they're trying to work from what he does, what he says, to who he is? Same thing. And if you're familiar with John's gospel, you might know that that by the time we get to the the end of chapter 11, the story's going to culminate in in widespread rejection, opposition to Jesus. But before we get there, the second half of John 10, Jesus graciously seizes one more opportunity (laughs) to explain to us Why exactly is it that he deserves your trust? Why does he deserve your trust? He asked the Jews here to honestly evaluate his works, to to look at them, to, to consider his deeds, to consider what he said. Why does he ask him to do that? 
because he knows something that we need to know. And it's really the point of this whole second half of the chapter, okay? The works of Jesus compel our trust in Jesus by revealing his divine identity. That's what's going on here. The the works of Jesus, what he does and says, compels our trust in Jesus by what? By showing us who he really is, revealing his divine identity. Think of it this way. Jesus came to do something far greater than just add to our box of religious knowledge. If if you came here on Sunday morning because you think, you know what, pastor, I just... You know, I just love learning new things about Jesus. Well, I'm grateful you're here. I hope maybe you'll learn something new about Jesus. But you know what? If you've been worshiping with the people of God, if you've been a Christian for a long time, there's a lot of things you're going to hear on a Sunday that part of your mind says, I think I've heard that before. In fact, if you're hearing a lot of things come out of my mouth that you think, I've never heard that before. What should you be concerned about? (laughs) Am I preaching the unchanging word of God, right? You might think, what good is a sermon if I don't learn something new? Friend, here's the reality. Our greatest need when we gather as the people of God on Sunday is not so much to learn something new, though sometimes that will happen, but it's to remember something old and trust Jesus accordingly. You know what I'm talking about? It's why we want unoriginal preaching. Jesus says what he says, does what he does to show us who he is and compel us to trust him. Don't take my word for it. Listen to John 20, 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, think trust, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's, here's the big picture of this chapter, okay? We're gonna get in a lot of weeds in different places <laughs> to think carefully this morning, but I want you to remember the map, okay? What's the big map? What Jesus does, his signs or his works, they do something. They show us who Jesus is, his character, his identity. And given who he is, his character, his identity, how ought we respond as the people of God? We should trust him. What he does shows us who he is and compels our trust. So the context of this chapter is, is polemical. A lot of arguments going on here, but the goal is pastoral. Trust in Jesus. Confident trust in Jesus. And, and the Lord helps us get there by making two connections in these verses between what Jesus does and who Jesus is. So that's the structure this morning, okay? Point number one, first connection. Jesus is sovereign in salvation. That's what he does because, who is he? He's the Christ. Okay, verses 22 to 30. Let's begin with some historical context here because context always matters. It's winter in Jerusalem by this time, John tells us. And, And the feast of dedication or Hanukkah is at hand. If you're not familiar with the background there, that that festival was relatively new, only been going on for maybe 200 years or so at this point, because it commemorated the rededication of the temple in 165 BC, quick history lesson, 
What happened then? Well, a pagan ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. Check this out. By sacrificing a pig to the god, Roman god Jupiter on it. That didn't go over very well. <laughs> and so there was something called the Maccabean Revolt. And during that revolt, they took back governing authority of the temple, the Jews did, and they dedicated the temple, rededicated the temple back to the Lord. So that the whole festival testifies of God's faithfulness to sanctify his dwelling place. That's the context. That's the stuff they knew that we have to learn because we don't come in knowing that, you know? But this year at this Hanukkah, something was very different. Something was very different. This time, the true temple. Who's that? God incarnate, right? Was entering the physical temple to sanctify his people that through faith in him, we might become what? Living temples of the spirit. But there's an obstacle to Jesus saving, sanctifying work here. And it's frankly the same obstacle that all of us face today when it comes to trust in Jesus. And that obstacle is unbelief. Look at verse 24. Our refusal to trust Jesus. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, just tell us plainly. That wasn't an innocent request for information. Okay? But keep this in mind. Other than his conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4, it's interesting to know that, that Jesus actually never comes right out and says, hey, check it out. I'm the Messiah. You know, or in Greek, I'm the Christ. I'm, I'm the deliverer of God's people who's going to make right all that is wrong in this world. And you might think, well, Jesus, why not? If that's who you are, just say it. Here's why. It was wise. His, his reticence was wise because by the first century, the Jews, including those surrounding him right here in this chapter, they had come to interpret, they understood all the Old Testament promises, prophecies of a coming Messiah in political and a military sense. What were they looking for? They were looking for someone who would deliver them from Rome. And so if Jesus had just started throwing that title around, he would have been completely misunderstood, friends. Completely misunderstood. Because Jesus, he didn't come to start an uprising and deliver God's people from the Romans. What did he come to do? He came to lay down his life so that he could deliver us from what? A far greater enemy called sin and death. And so he doesn't answer their question directly. Look at verse 25. He focuses instead on their, their failure to respond with faith, with trust to everything he has clearly done and said thus far that clearly reveals his identity. Verse 25, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. It's, it's Jesus' way of saying, guys, I've answered your question in a thousand ways. If you had eyes to see. 
but you still refuse to believe in me. But notice he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. Verse 26, he keeps on going to explain the ultimate reason for their unbelief. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Friends, Scripture never, ever presents the Lord as a, as a benevolent merchant in a town square, meekly and freely holding out the gift of salvation to anyone who decides to stop in his tent. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Not the least, the, the God who created us is not engaged in some sort of cosmic dance with mankind. Okay, like, like we're, we're equal partners kind of responding to one another in kind. No, he's, he's the God who fashioned the heavens. He, he's the God who calls the stars by name. Isaiah 40, 26, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Don't dance with a God like that. He's the God who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And that, friend, if you've never thought about God in those kinds of great sovereign terms, that is the best news you could ever hear. Why? Because of what Isaiah says next. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. prophet doesn't say they will discover it for themselves. Why not? Because human unbelief is not a fixed variable with which God must cope out of some sort of obligatory deference to the freedom of your will. He is Lord over our faith and he is Lord over our unbelief, all of it. He's, he's a sovereign king, a sovereign savior. So, so the Jews around Jesus didn't believe him because they didn't want to believe him, right? But that didn't mean what, what they wanted or what they didn't want to do was in that moment somehow ruling over some small part of God's universe. No, without diminishing their responsibility in the least. Jesus asserts that the ultimate reason they didn't believe is that they were not numbered among those whom God had chosen to grant the unmerited gift of saving faith. Friend, if you, if you be, refuse to believe in Jesus, refuse to believe in him, okay, God will justly hold you accountable. Justly hold you accountable. 
He, he doesn't make anyone rebel against his authority. Nor does he prevent anyone who wants to believe in Jesus from trusting Jesus. Okay, why, why is trusting Jesus so important? Let's just pause here and establish this. Why, why is trusting Jesus so important? Because it's at the cross of Christ where God's justice and God's mercy meet. That's why. Because we need a savior who will rescue us from sin and death. We, we deserve God's judgment. So what do we discover at the cross? That God's justice, his judgment for those who trust in Jesus is fully satisfied. It's been poured out on Christ. And what else do we discover at the cross? That God's mercy is freely offered to those who trust Jesus. Why? Because the price has already been paid. Mercy and justice meet. That's why trusting Jesus matters. But that that justice of God does, does not demand, please hear this, that God mercifully intervene in the hearts of all who fail to cry out to him for salvation. If anything, justice demands we all die on account of our sins. That's justice. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. What does he do? He draws this one and he draws that one. And he draws this one and he draws that one back from what? Back from the brink of hell to which every, toward which every one of us is born running. By giving us a new heart that is willing and able to trust Jesus. In the mystery of his will, what does he do? He chooses a people for his own possession. From eternity past, a flock whose very existence is inexplainable apart from divine mercy. Romans 9 verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Now we're stepping on toes. That's a hard truth, friends, isn't it? It's a hard truth. Because, why is it hard? Because we are coming face to face here with the humbling mystery of the sovereignty of God. What's that mean? That those whom God justly passes over for salvation receive exactly what they deserve. Okay, that the sovereign purpose of God prevails in their judgment. And those in whom God mercifully intervenes receive what? Exactly what Jesus deserves. The sovereign purpose of God prevails in their salvation. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear 
my voice. And I know them, and they follow me categorically. What's Jesus mean by that? Well, to hear Jesus' voice is to grasp the good news of the gospel, okay? Paying attention to all he's done to, to save us from the wrath of God through his life and death and resurrection. Okay, to be known by Jesus is to be a chosen object of his covenant-making, covenant-keeping mercy, even before you were born. And to follow Jesus is to what? To, to respond to the salvation he freely offers us through the obedience of faith. So, so what's Jesus saying? What, what's the point of verse 27? The ultimate reason that anyone hears him or is known by him or follows him ultimately has nothing to do with them and everything to do with God. It's because they are one of his Sheep. His sheep. In the words of J.C. Ryle, they are his by gift from the Father. His by purchase. His by calling and choice. And his by their own consent and heart submission. In the highest sense, they are Christ's property. And just as a man feels a special interest in that which he has bought at a great price and made his own, so does the Lord Jesus feel a peculiar interest in his people. And yet, hear this, okay? We must not respond to that sovereignty and salvation by, by wringing our hands <laughs> over whether or not we are part of the flock of God. Why not? Because if you, if you feel the depth of your guilt, friend, if you, if you long for the joy of, of forgiveness, if you want the gladness of relationship with God, a love that doesn't depend on your performance, a satisfaction of soul only your creator can provide, what does the Bible say you must do? Wring your hands and try to figure out if you're part of the chosen people of God, right? Wrong. What does it say? Acts 16.31. What must you do? What should you do? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. But, but remember this, Christian. This is the caution here in Jesus' words. When someone does not believe, as those around Jesus here were not believing, the sovereign purposes of God still prevail. Why? Because God's plan isn't held hostage by the unbelief of sinful men. That's why. Okay, e even our, our sin and unbelief, they, they fall under his divine authority, exalting his sovereignty in the highest degree without diminishing our responsibility in the least. And so that means, what's the application here? Well, if you're, that means your child's spiritual, spiritual condition or your parent's spiritual condition or your friend's spiritual condition does not ultimately rest on your faithfulness or competency in the work of discipleship, okay? They are not sovereign. <laughs> you are not sovereign. Jesus Christ is sovereign. That's the point. 
And if you're a Christian, the sovereignty of God in your salvation should do two things for you. It should profoundly humble you, humble your pride, and provide a wealth of spiritual comfort. It's like, it's like a cool drink or a ray of sunlight in a dark and weary land. Why? Because verse 27 promises that Jesus will complete the good work he began in you. Look, look at verse 28. What does Jesus say to us? It's part of his flock to you, Christian. I give them eternal life and they will never, ever perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There was a sermon earlier in this series where I mentioned that there are two ways to say something won't happen in the Greek language. And here, John actually puts both of them back to back again (laughs) to say they will never, ever into eternity perish. Literally translated. If you're one of Jesus' sheep, here's his point, okay? If you're one of Jesus' sheep, the same hand that upholds the universe is upholding your faith. Think about that. Okay, enabling you to trust Jesus. Keep on trusting Jesus till the, till the day he brings you home. Why, why is this comforting? Well, illustration from my own life, okay? There are mornings when I wake up and I feel like a functional atheist. You know what I'm talking about? Lord, are you really there? How come I don't feel the faith and trust in you that I felt 12 hours ago or 12 months ago. Are you for real? Or you open your Bible and you try to pray and, and all that happens, oh, this is, yeah, that's helpful. Thanks, God. You know, all, all manner of just spiritual doubts and fears just start filling your mind. And then the helpful voice in your head says, what kind of Christian are you? Where's your faith, pastor? Oh, you who preached on Sunday, do you really trust in Jesus? Do you think you would feel this way if your faith was for real? Stop kidding yourself. You ever felt that, friend? Or heard that? Here's what John 10, through the words of Jesus, Say back, very simply, friend, you are not the Christ. (laughs) You're not the Christ. Jesus is. And listen, neither the strength of your faith nor your ability to generate faith in the first place is the basis on which you will be saved. Okay? If it were, your faith would become, what would your faith become? A work of merit, right? And you would in some small way deserve some little pie slice of credit for your own redemption. But that is not God's way. That's, that's not God's plan. His sovereignty both encompasses our unbelief and it ensures the perseverance of the feeblest faith until the day Jesus Christ returns and brings you home. So don't look at the measure of your faith in despair. 
If that's all you're looking at, you should despair. (laughs) Don't do that though. Look to the strong arm, the mighty hand, the sovereign power, the decisive mercy, the faithful word of Jesus, and with trembling awe, rejoice. Again and again and again. Why? Because if Jesus is holding on to you, then there is no power in the universe, including your own stubbornness and apathy and dullness of heart and lameness of affection that can snatch you out of his hand. That's a promise to you, Christian. John 10 shouldn't send us running into the confusing morass of how do I reconcile God's sovereignty and my responsibility. I just wish this would all go away and we could just kind of get back to Jesus. All this doctrine stuff. It's all about Jesus, man. Really? It is all about Jesus. But who does he say he is? He's sovereign salvation. If the Lord sees fit, here's the bottom line, to exercise his sovereign power in your life, Christian, by giving you great faith all the days of your life, never wavering. You're, you're like, like Hebrews 11, you know, but honestly, many of them wavered too. So that's another sermon. But, but you feel like just day after day, I'm just onward and upward and other people look at you and how do you, do? I don't know. I just, I am of great faith. Well, praise God for that, right? All will be well. But if the Lord sees fit to exercise his sovereign power by preserving a flickering wick, of faith in your heart. All will still be well. Because the Lord's your keeper. You're not. Okay, your, your faith doesn't uphold you. Jesus does. And that's, that's not an invitation to spiritual apathy. Oh, great, now I can just chill. No, that's a summons to what? To trust in the Lord, right? To trust in Jesus. Why? Because he's the Christ, That's his identity. Remember, who is he? That's his identity, not yours. That's who he is, not you. Jesus is sovereign salvation because he's the Christ. And that's the first connection Jesus makes here between what he does and who he is. He's sovereign in salvation because he's the Christ, not you. That compels our trust. Here's the second Second connection, Jesus does the Father's work because he is the Son of God. Remember the roadmap, okay? We're looking at what does he do and what does that tell us about who he is in such a way that it compels our trust in him. So here's the second thing. He does the Father's work. What's that tell us about who he is? Because he's the Son of God. So you've got here on the heels of Jesus just explaining his absolute sovereignty on salvation, giving us, part two, an an incredible window, insight, into the nature and work of the triune God. Because it's not just God the Son who holds on to his sheep. It's also God the Father. All, All things find their source in him. Look at verse 29, including the preserving work of the Son. My Father who has given them, who's the them? My sheep. He's given my sheep to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. 
mean, it's like if, if the first part of this were not good enough news, <laughs> Jesus just says, let's just, let's just put another cake on top of that. It's incredible. What, what's he saying? He's saying that the son keeps his own. He keeps you, Christian. Why? Because it's the mission the father gave him to accomplish. He's on mission. You know, we, we often talk about Christians. Christians we, you know, we're on mission with the gospel. What are we doing? Are we sharing Jesus? Well, guess what? The only reason we can be on mission is because Jesus is on a mission and his mission is on to you. <laughs> He's doing the father's work, not his own, as Jesus said in John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you see what that, that shows us about who Jesus is? What, what's it show us? He, he had a self-conscious awareness of and commitment to be, being the Father's chosen means of fulfilling his redemptive plan. And so it's not just the faithfulness of the Son that guarantees your perseverance in the faith, Christian. It's also the faithfulness of the Father because Jesus' work is the Father's work. And as Jesus is careful to note here, verse 29, the Father is greater than all. Let's just take a minute to fill in that all blank, okay? What's that mean? What's that mean, all right? He's greater than your fears. He's greater than your foes. He's greater than your strengths. He's greater than your weaknesses. The, the supremacy of the Father's power guarantees the success of the Son's preserving work in your life. That's his point. Oh, well, that's cool, Pastor. What's for lunch? What's for lunch? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the security that this country provides or tries to provide for the president of the United States doesn't hold a candle to the security a Christian has in Christ Jesus. Not a candle. <laughs> to read John 10, 29 and say, well, okay, thanks for the tidbit, what's for lunch? Is to miss the entire point. Because in a world that idolizes personal health and safety, seen that? This we know, that our true security doesn't, doesn't rise or fall on the tide of COVID cases or vaccination rates. What's, what's it fixed on? Colossians 3.3, 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's your security. Always. Now here's what we have to think very carefully, okay? Think very carefully with me here. Though not one in personhood, the Father and the Son are united as one being. Why? Because they possess the same fullness of divine nature. But they are also one, as Jesus says in verse 30, in action. 
okay? The role of the father is different than the son in, in keeping with their eternal order of relationship, but their unity in action is such that whatever the father does, the son does, and whatever the son does, the father does. Right, listen to how Herman Bavinck says this, okay? All the works of God, and he uses some Latin, which basically means outside of himself, have one single author, namely God. But they come into being through the cooperation of the three persons, each of whom plays a special role and fulfills a special task, both in the works of creation and those of redemption and sanctification. Here's the key point. All things proceed from the Father, are accomplished by the Son, and are completed in the Spirit, which is why Jesus could say in verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. But suffice it to say, Jesus' little assertion here, and it was not a little assertion, (laughs) I and the Father are one, doesn't go over very well with Jews. Just doesn't. Why not? Because the words of Deuteronomy 6.4 are doubtlessly echoing in their minds. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so in their minds, Jesus has just committed blasphemy. Verse 33, you being a man, make yourself God. Is Jesus a man? Yes. No salvation without it. Is Jesus making himself God? No. No. He's not making himself God. Why not? Because he is God. (laughs) He's simply... He's telling them who he is. So notice verse 30, it's one of the clearest assertions of Jesus' deity in the entire gospel. And it's a reminder, friends, in our crazy world that that Jesus doesn't leave it up to us to decide what we want him to be. He says who he is. And as succinctly as it possibly could be said, the answer is, I'm God. And his response to the Jews' immediate attempt to stone him here is twofold. Let's briefly look at these, okay? First, he points out a glaring inconsistency in their logic. Psalm 82.6, part of the, the law of God that they claimed to honor, it actually describes human judges in Israel as gods. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. What's up with that? Well, it's the psalmist's way of describing the, the divine origin of their office and authority. So Jesus concludes, verses 34 to 36 here, guys, if it's not blasphemy to refer to sinful men as gods in a limited sense, how can it be blasphemy for me to say I'm the son of God? I mean, after all, I'm the perfect judge to whom their authority and office pointed all along, right? I'm the one, verse 36, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. If, if they can rightly claim some kind of divine association identity, surely I am entitled to do so all the more. But don't miss here, look at verse 35. The way Jesus handles the Bible and all of that. Do you see it? He he rests the entire weight of his argument on a single word. God's. Why? Because scripture cannot be broken, friends. 
Do you realize if, if God himself, because that's who Jesus is, assigned the highest possible authority to a single word in the Bible, what should we do? How should we respond? He sets our example here. Don't, don't neglect the absolute importance of every single word in that book, in this book whether through lazy ignorance or active disobedience. So he, he first points out an inconsistency in their logic. Here's the second and final thing he does. Okay, he directs their attention back to the testimony of his own good works. Okay, good, not in the sense of just being morally acceptable, but, but in the sense of reflecting the manifold excellency of God. Verse 37 captures the whole point here. If I am not doing the works of my father, don't believe me, guys. Don't believe me. Does that seem a little odd for Jesus? I mean, don't slice and dice that quote, right? Keep the first and the second part together. Why, why would Jesus say that? If I'm not doing the works of God, don't believe me. Where did we start? Because Jesus himself recognizes the connection between what somebody does and who they are. What God does, who God is. He basically says, guys, this isn't complicated. It's not complicated. If you pay careful attention to the works I'm doing, to the words I'm teaching, to the miracles I'm performing, then the conclusion is inescapable. I'm doing the Father's work. And that should tell you something about my identity. Verse 37, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. As as Andreas Kostenberger observes, the continuity of their work reflects the perfection of their communion. He does the Father's work. Why? Because he's the Son of God. That's the connection. One of my boys once asked me a very insightful question. Dad, why do we read the same Bible story over and over again if we already know what happens? That's a good question. You ever wonder that? Well, John 10, 38 gives you a marvelous answer. Look there. It's not enough to simply know who Jesus is in a categorical sense. Oh yeah, I know him. Heard the story before. He's the son of God. He is. (laughs) But there is a progressive force to what Jesus says next. Believe the works that you may know categorically and understand or continue to understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What kind of vision for trusting Jesus is he setting forth here? He's setting forth a vision, brothers and sisters, where faith in Jesus isn't a destination we arrive at. It's a lifelong journey of understanding and enjoying the weight of his divine identity and glory more and more. Why could Jesus say that? Because the greatness of God is unsearchable, which means the glory of Jesus is unsearchable. So what do you do in response to that? Persist in meditating on the works of Jesus as God's preserved them for us in his word so that you can what? Continue to understand and marvel at the person of Jesus. 
and pay attention to what he says and does. Why? Because his works, what he does, reveal the truth of his identity, who he is. The second half of John 10, with all that's going on, it's all about connecting those two things. What Jesus does, who he is. So what what does the fact that he is sovereign in salvation tell us? He's the Christ. What does the fact that he does the Father's works tell us? He's the Son of God. So if somebody ever tells you, just trust Jesus, what do you say back? I don't just trust Jesus. I trust Jesus because he's the Christ and because he's the Son of God. Because of who he is. Trust in Jesus is not a blind leap. And nor should it be for you, friend. Genuine faith is informed reliance. It's a faith compelled by works that reveal the trustworthiness of his identity to our forgetful, doubting, unbelieving hearts again and again and again. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that when we wonder who you are, that we don't have to take the latest temperature of our feelings about you or decide to adopt somebody else's thoughts about you. But we can simply turn our gaze again and again and again to your works to what you've said, to what you've done. Jesus, thank you for how your sovereignty and salvation compels us to trust you as the Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for how the way you do the Father's work compels us to trust that you are the Son of God. We pray, Father, that this week our trust in you would not be a a mere casualty of decades of momentum or something we assume, but rather the result of what we know about your character, your identity, your trustworthiness because of what your work teaches us about you. Thank you, Jesus, for the sweet comfort of your sovereignty and the way it holds and keeps us even when our faith is frail. We love you. Amen.